Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. No, we're not funny people, no. Jeff. We are just like basically we're, humorless. Yep. Freezing humorless out scolds. here. Humorless. White walkers. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Jane Coaston and Box.com's chief Mueller correspondent, Andrew Prokop. Gonna kind of need a new job. Yeah, I was about to be like, that's, that's <laughs> gonna be tough for you. <laughs> of recent news cycle. Fortunately, there's nine million presidential candidates, so so always work can be done. And scandals. Yes. Yeah, and plenty of scandals. So so it's all there. No, so uh, really really excited to have you on. I was uh, on vacation uh, during Mueller Week in exciting Central Pennsylvania, getting in touch with real Americans, Trump voters, etc. Uh, so I'm, I mostly missed the Mueller news. Um, so I gather, though, that this was something a little bit other than the complete and total exoneration of Donald Trump that had been advertised on Twitter previously, because he went back to calling it um, 18 angry Democrats and and so forth. Um, so like, what, what does this report say? Yeah, so I have been reading it, rereading it, did, did the quick read when it first came out, and then uh, have been doing an extremely slow read and taking a lot of notes over the past several days because this is an extremely dense document and and there is really a lot here. I, think. I won't even pretend to have read it. <laughs> I, I have read about half of it, but then I got I got bogged down in certain sections of it and then realized where volume two was and was like, okay, all right, that's where we are now. Did you skip ahead to the ending or I mean, it, it's kind There's of like twists in there. it's kind of like how every book I read in which a dog might die, I check at the end to make sure that the dog has not died. But this wasn't quite like that because there was no dog, regrettably, and no uh, obstruction charge. It's either. true, right? But uh, so you know, as everybody knows, right by now, the report is divided into two main parts. The first is about Russian interference with the campaign and whether the Trump campaign had any involvement in that. And I think the top line takeaway from that is that, you know, we know there were no charges filed against any Trump people for conspiring with the Russian government uh, to interfere with the election. So 
I think the report is pretty clear that Mueller does not really have evidence that such a conspiracy took place. Like the Russians were clearly trying to help the Trump campaign through these two major efforts. And there there aren't really a lot of signs that Mueller thinks there may have been some sort of secret conspiracy that he couldn't charge. Like it, it just really doesn't seem like there's not much specificity to like what that might have been. There are a whole lot of shady contacts and things that went on. And one important bit that is almost totally redacted is the question of what the Trump campaign may have known about WikiLeaks's plans or uh, what they did with hacked material in advance. That is being redacted because Roger Stone is facing a trial. And um, so, so that is a very interesting gap in the report that, so that we don't yet that, know that was about. A, that was a question that I had about this, right? So when you say there was no criminal conspiracy between two different entities, right? One reason that could be is that there was no conspiracy. And one reason could be that it wasn't criminal. People are allowed to cooperate in general in life, right? Like that's that's not a crime. And so you wouldn't be charged for like cooperating with somebody else on a thing. And that has always seemed to me to be like a dangling question in this whole inquiry is like, were it the case that the Trump campaign had advanced knowledge of WikiLeaks, whatever, whatever, and they like sat around a table and were like, here's what we're going to do. Like, is that illegal at all? And I guess you're saying that the, the the facts around that question have been redacted. So we don't actually know if the conclusion is that there was no advanced knowledge or coordination, yes. or if the conclusion is just that that's not illegal. Yes. And Bill Barr, in his press conference describing the report's findings uh, shortly before it was released, had some very interesting remarks on this. He said that the report concluded that publishing the stolen information, the hacked emails, was not a crime or shouldn't right. have been charged, so that it would only have been a crime if there was conspiracy with the hacking itself and that there was no such conspiracy, and that therefore no criminal charges were filed against Trump associates in connection with the publication of the hacked email. So he he really elided the question of whether, um, whether there was some Trump associate involvement in the WikiLeaks like advanced knowledge or something like that. And there is a very interesting line in the report where Mueller is trying to explain what Trump's motivations might have been for trying to obstruct the investigation if he really didn't conspire with the Russians. And Mueller writes that um, one potential motivation is that he was concerned that some conduct he didn't know about was criminal. For instance, the example Mueller gives is having advanced information on the knowledge of the WikiLeaks releases. So it's 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 still we're missing the facts of what's going on here. But but what is clear is that um, you know, there, there's something under those black bars. Wait, so, so I mean, so just to give like a hypothetical example here, right? Like yeah. Fox News, media institution, influential in American life, uh, known to talk to Donald Trump about things. If Trump's campaign and Fox News executives were to have a conversation about how they think 
raising the profile of Eric Swalwell would be tactically advantageous to Trump's reelection campaign. And they worked out some plan that involved both Fox's coverage and Trump's tweets and whatever else. Like, Seems like a bad plan. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, right. But I'm saying like, that's not a criminal conspiracy, not because it isn't a conspiracy, but because it isn't illegal. Yes. Right. And so with WikiLeaks, right, like uh, Julian Assange is now facing criminal charges in the United States. And one big question with that has always been that, like, there's been some talk in the intelligence community for years of what well, we should charge them with illegally publishing right. this stolen classified information. And there's been a lot of pushback from the journalistic community, from people who care about the free press. Right. To say they, that, you're talking about like the Pentagon Papers or something like that. Like it, this, you know, WikiLeaks, I, I, it's it's weird because I feel like WikiLeaks has had this weird change of perception. And then we talked a lot right. about that with Julian Assange. But if you remember in the olden days, part of why WikiLeaks was so noted was because it was sharing diplomatic cables that had to do with the war in Afghanistan. And And specifically having to do with U.S. military plans in Afghanistan, which is how WikiLeaks and Chelsea Manning came together. But that there's been that kind of interesting back and forth on like the publication of this information. Is that itself chargeable or a criminal? So ultimately, Assange has been charged with collaborating with some actual theft of documents rather than charged with the publication of documents. So then going back to the Trump-Russia case, right, if there is a nexus of collaboration between WikiLeaks and the Trump campaign that simply relates to the publishing of John Podesta's emails, there's no crime there to be the criminal conspiracy. Right. Uh, unless unless you you would have to demonstrate that Trump people were involved in the computer crimes rather than in the publication of the stolen information, which is all I mean, this is all just like a long winded way of saying that, like, you can not be charged with something. Trump has this constant, you know, no collusion refrain, right? But like what we know is that there's no charges. And it seems to me that like one big reason, one reason I've always been like a moderate skeptic about this whole thing is that it seems to me that like a lot of what might go on that you might consider collusion would just not be illegal. Right. Like you're allowed to collaborate with outside people and try to win elections like you don't your your critics can criticize you for it because you're collaborating with bad people or something but like you know it's politics but then you know it's something else that's interesting is that when we go through the report and andrew we'll let you kind of get back to detailing volume one is how much of an effort was made um you know and i think this was of specific importance to me because i've written on the subject a bunch of times how much of an effort was made both from kind of the WikiLeaks side and from others, of trying to obscure the origins of how WikiLeaks got a lot of this information in the first place. And that, you know, there is the report specifically calls out the Seth Rich conspiracy theory, which blamed um, a Democratic National Committee staffer named Seth Rich for stealing these documents and providing them to WikiLeaks. And Rich was uh, murdered in July 2016 in a D.C. neighborhood, and the conspiracy theorists alleged that he was murdered by the Democratic Party. And it's interesting that the report notes that 
WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and a host of other people. And, uh, you know, I know Andrew and I have talked about this because this involves uh, both Roger Stone and our personal favorite conspiracy theorist, Jerome Corsi, um, noted for being insane. But, you know, the the degree to which just trying to obfuscate that takes up a, a fair part of this report. Yeah. And the problem is that uh, a lot of the WikiLeaks sections are redacted because right. of the Stones trial. So so we we don't really know what the ultimate upshot is of all this. You can see in the you know the unredacted words in some of these sections they talk about um stuff Rick Gates told Mueller about what Trump was hearing on the phone apparently from Stone. Stuff Michael Cohen told Mueller and has also testified about publicly about hearing Roger Stone talk to Trump on speakerphone tell him about Assange's plans. Uh there's a long section that's redacted about you know Jerome Corsi and seemingly finding out or figuring out that uh, WikiLeaks had Podesta's emails before that information was public. And and then there's a long section at the end of volume one about the prosecution and declination decisions that's redacted that seems to be about this question about um, publishing information that was stolen and whether it could be considered a crime. So you know, we don't know what's under those black bars. It appears to describe Mueller's thinking for not filing charges against perhaps Stone, perhaps Assange or others for publishing the stolen Russian information. But the upshot is that, like, there's no allegation here that the Trump people were involved in the hacking of the documents itself. And it's murky and vague about what Trump himself and his associates may have known about um, WikiLeaks disclosures. And then apart from that, uh, there is a very long section, over 100 pages, about Russian government links to and contacts with the Trump campaign. And, you know, the top line takeaway from this section is that Mueller did not establish any criminal conspiracy with any of these contacts, so he didn't file charges directly about any of them. But in these hundred pages is just like a litany of shady contacts, behind the scenes meetings like like this talks about how details the timeline of the Trump Tower Moscow talks that Michael Cohen was involved with, details um, more information that we haven't heard before about how he was regularly briefing Trump, told Trump immediately about his phone call with um, someone in Putin's press secretary's office about the project while Trump was running for president. They kept talking about this. Uh, afterwards giving Trump updates and the deal didn't end up being made. But, you know, this was something that was going on behind the scenes, shaping Trump's approach to Russia, likely during the campaign and what he was saying on the trail. He had this potentially what's described as a possible billion dollar project in the offing during the campaign. Then you have like all the Trump campaign advisors, George Papadopoulos, Carter Page, and Paul Manafort, um, all of their Russian-tied individuals that they were in contact with are laid out here. We learned a little more about Manafort and uh, this issue about Manafort sharing polling data that was interesting. He uh, apparently, he got the job on the Trump campaign in March 2016 and immediately had Rick Gates write up a memo to various 
Ukrainian oligarchs telling him about his job, uh, started giving this information, this internal Trump polling data to Konstantin Kalimnik, uh, a longtime associate of his who's Russian and tied to Russian intelligence. And um, and Mueller says he does not know what Kalimnik did with the polling data, but that um, Manafort understood it was going to be shared with several Ukrainian oligarchs and Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. And that at one point they had this in-person meeting in New York where Manafort briefed Kalimnik on the campaign. This is according to Rick Gates and specifically mentioned targeting Midwestern states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, also Minnesota is mentioned. And then Mueller says, we we don't know whether Kalimnik did anything with that information. Kalimnik has publicly said, oh, no, it was it was just mainly, you know, kind of punditry and, you know, describing publicly available data and nothing happened there. But yeah. I mean, the, the key thing about this, it seems to me, is right. So there was this big after Barr's memo came out, right? There was this big like new narrative construct that like the media had like gotten everything wrong about this Trump-Russia case and like really blown it and it was a huge embarrassment. And I feel like as the report comes out- Conspiracy theorizing. Right. And, And I feel like as the report comes out, it's just the opposite. It's that like what was literally reported in the media was like very largely- true and backed up. And we have now learned some additional details about some of that stuff that was reported. But that to the extent that you read all of these reports of shady contacts and suspicious activities and like what good reason is there for the campaign manager of a U.S. presidential campaign to be discussing polling data with his Ukrainian associate possibly tied to Russian intelligence and you like sketched out a theory of like what was behind the data points that like Robert Mueller also doesn't know, right? Yes. Like <laughs> that, 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 that I mean. Yeah, there was a lot of punditry about like, you know, Mueller knows all and like he, I think what's clear. But I mean, just, report, just like that's the distinction between like, like what was the reporting versus like what were people just like saying yeah. about the reporting and that like what was in the reporting Seems good. And like that's largely what's in the report. Like what's not in the report is like the grand reveal that like makes sense of it all. And now we can see. Or the Steele dossier conspiracy. Right. You know, now we can see what it all amounts to. Asserted that there was a years long conspiracy of Trump working with Russian officials, sharing information that they were directly involved with planning the leaks of the emails together that Cohen traveled to Prague to pay off Russian hackers. And apparently none of that is true. And and Mueller has nothing really to substantiate that. But I mean, also, like Mueller is not a um, I don't quite know how to put this, but like he's an American prosecutor. He's not a um, like an action spy movie hero, right? So it's like, we know that Manafort had this weird meeting with Konstantin Kilimek. It seems weird. And then like, we don't know what happened. Like, Robert Mueller does not have a mechanism through which he could force like high-level Russian intelligence agencies to reveal like all of their secrets, right? Like, he, he, he can investigate like what Americans did and like what they did was have a bunch of weird, somewhat shady meetings with Russians. But like you're, it's like it's allowed 
to have shady meetings with Russians. That's true. So something I do want to get back on is that there's been the Mueller investigation. And then there's this interesting kind of, you know, some people have termed this group kind of the anti-anti-Trump uh-huh. group. And they've really focused on both the beginnings of the Mueller investigation, arguing that the entire report is fruit of the poisonous tree because it didn't involve, it didn't begin with Papadopoulos, it began with the Steele dossier, right. but also getting very concerned about Carter Page and unmasking with regard to FISA warrants that were then used to purportedly spy on Carter Page. Does the report go into anything about kind of both the beginnings of the investigation and kind of Carter Page and FISA? Because I feel like that, you know, if you're starting to hear kind of like, now we need to investigate the investigators. And I think that that's becoming kind of a bit of a drumbeat among some of the right. There's kind of a split between the people who are like, let's just end this and move on for the good of America. But then there's kind of the, we need to investigate everything about how this investigation began side. And I think that the FISA warrants is something that's coming up specifically with Page. Well, the inspector general of the Justice Department is working on an investigation into the Steele dossier and how it was used in the Carter Page FISA warrants. But I think the the report does back up the longtime assertions that the investigation did not start because of the dossier. There's actually more information on this than we knew because a foreign official who we know is um, Australian ambassador based in London – Uh, told the U.S. government that George Papadopoulos um, learned that Russia had emails of Clinton or dirt on Clinton in in some form and that they had plans to anonymously release them. And uh, the Australian official heard that and didn't report it immediately, but then after – you know, the leak started. Um, he told the U.S. government, uh, hey, I think you should know about this. And I do think that Papadopoulos, he has now served his prison sentence for making false statements to the FBI. And now he's out and about saying that he was wrongly accused and set up and so on. But the report actually shows a little more. It it details about, about Papadopoulos's efforts uh, and communications with other Trump officials to um, that went on for months about it's not clear like what they're talking about exactly, but they keep talking about a secret meeting with with Russian officials that they're trying to set up. At one point, they show a page from Papadopoulos's journal in July, and it says they are talking to us. It is a lot of risk. Office of Putin, and like. You know, basically, there are very good reasons to look into what George Papadopoulos may have been up to here. Uh, Carter Page is also discussed, and Mueller is a little – he doesn't substantiate or even come close to substantiating anything in the dossier about Page being involved in the hacking. He talks about how Page traveled to Moscow in July 2016 and um, made – certain descriptions of what happened on the trip and then there are some redacted sentences and and then Mueller has a line it says something like um but we were not able to fully assess what happened during Page's trip to Russia and um I don't know I I read the report as kind of saying you know maybe suggesting maybe something's up with Carter Page but there's really not much there to suggest that he was involved in any kind of spy conspiracy or or really nothing much connecting him 
to certainly the hacking um, or the leaks or anything like that. Okay, I think we should we should take a break and then and then talk about obstruction of justice. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. Trying to keep up with the political news cycle in 2023 can sometimes feel like staring into a black hole of information, where hundreds of thousands of opinions and facts get sucked in and distorted. We know it's a lot, even if you're listening to The Weeds every week. You all know, in order for the average person to stay capital I informed, it can help to find and listen to sources who are working to cut through the noise and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. Not Another Politics Podcast tries to do just that. It was launched and produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. It's not a pundits and politicians podcast. Rather, it takes a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but here are just a few that you can listen to right now. Whether or not ousting incumbents improves the economy, the extent to which white Americans favor white politicians, and what happens when Fox News viewers tune into CNN instead for a month. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. I love hosting people, so I know that having family or friends stay the night might seem like a great idea until you find yourself scrambling for extra cushions. Or worse, scrounging up an air mattress only to realize it has a hole in it. Well, you won't need to worry about any of that with Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa. Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa can make your guests feel at home. It's an everyday sofa that easily converts into a queen-size bed that they say comfortably sleeps two people. The Shift Sleeper Sofa has layers of memory foam, therapeutic comfort foam, and a supportive core foam to provide an amazing night's sleep for your guests. And like all of Burrow's furniture, it's a breeze to get in your home with a painless online shopping experience and free shipping to your door. You can check out Burrow's new Shift Sleeper Sofa and all their furniture at burrow.com slash weeds and get 15% off your Burrow order when you do. That's burrow.com slash weeds for 15% off your Burrow purchase. Burrow.com slash weeds. So the report, uh, volume one, which details kind of the Russia involvement in Russian actions, and then there's volume two, um, which details kind of the questions of obstruction. Can you tell us how is that part of the report shaped and what did you learn from that? So the obstruction section, it really, a lot of the events described in it were already public information and had been reported on going back to um, Trump's firing of Comey. But there is a lot of new information, too, about Trump's efforts. It, it all focuses basically on Trump's efforts to impede or discredit the Russia investigation and to interfere with the Justice Department generally. And 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 it's just really striking to see it all put together, including some new information, uh, most notably that um, Trump's lawyer suggested to Michael Flynn when he was about to flip that the president w- wouldn't look w- – would view that with hostility. Um, a lot of tensions between Trump and the White House counsel Don McGahn are described. Um, but you know, th- the whole thing, it puts together a picture of I think really a, a president who does not care at all about um, – in any way, as as we all know at this point, respecting the independence of the Justice Department. He was clearly 
hell-bent on trying to interfere with this investigation. A lot of people have pointed out that a lot of his orders and and efforts to interfere with the investigation were just ignored by his appointees as like, oh, isn't that good news kind of thing. But, but you know, I had a few interesting, I thought, takeaways from this part of the report. Um, one is that Trump, you know, before reading this, a question I had was whether Trump's obstruction would ever go so far as a kind of indisputable, blatant uh, thing that there's hard evidence of. Something like telling a witness to give a false story, like outright, or something like destroying evidence. And as far as Mueller could tell, it does seem like Trump was really careful to go really close to the line, but to never exactly put one foot over it and and that he seems to have been sensitive about this. One example of this is is at one point Trump calls Don McGahn, the White House counsel in 2017 and says to him, you need to tell Rod Rosenstein, Mueller's boss, that Mueller has conflicts and he can't do the investigation. And McGahn interpreted this as an order to fire Mueller and he didn't do it. And then later, the New York Times reported on this, and Trump was furious and says to McGahn, this never happened. And McGahn says, no, this did happen. We had this call. You said this. And then, according to McGahn, Trump responded, I never used the word fired. I never used that word. So it's like definitely a sensitivity about an, an effort to do a lot of things through his lawyers, like this Michael Cohen false testimony that was submitted to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow. All of that was carefully workshopped by Trump's lawyer, Jay Sekulow, but Trump himself apparently never got personally involved with um, saying anything to Cohen directly. And Mueller says, we could not determine Trump's role in Cohen giving this false testimony because all the interactions were, were done through his lawyer, and that presents potential attorney-client privilege concerns with finding out that I, information. I'm really reminded in this of like there's a famous segment of the Watergate tapes where uh, Nixon is talking with Ehrlichman and John Dean, and Nixon is trying to orchestrate some cover-ups. And Dean is there on tape, and he's saying to the president – they're talking about doing like payoffs and hush money. And Dean is saying to the president, like, we don't really know how to do this, right? That like their obstruction of justice problems are getting worse. And like Dean's point is that like Richard Nixon is like a politician, right? Like a kind of crooked politician. And John Dean is like a Republican Party operative. And like so is John Ehrlichman. And they don't like they don't know how to get away with an organized crime conspiracy, up to and including they were freaking taping themselves, <laughs> right? Like it's like it's 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 bad, right? And then there's the the fictionalized version of this, and all the president's men, right? Is they have deep throats, saying like these guys aren't as smart as they think, and they got in over their heads, and that's like a like a fun scene in a movie. And I saw a certain amount of. Um, I don't know, like like liberal bluster about the Trump people and like how they were going to go down like this. But when you look at some of these accounts where Michael Cohn is saying that Trump instructed him to lie to Congress, but like when you look at the record, it's like you can't make that charge stick, right? And it's like there's so much that Trump seems 
not that well informed about in terms of like how the policy making process works and things like that. But he, unlike John Dean and unlike Richard Nixon, is actually really good at like insulating himself from directly doing illegal things, right? That like he makes his wishes known and sometimes subordinates carry out those wishes Sometimes they don't, but like he's not going to break the law. Yeah, he seems to be very careful. You know, famously, he never uses email. He likes to do all of his conversations in person. One issue that came up about this is that a lot of the White House officials and obviously including Comey as FBI director would then document their conversations with Trump in notes right away. But even those notes tend not to reveal him, you know, I hope you can let this go is what Trump supposedly told um, Comey about the Michael Flynn investigation. And, you know, even there, he has a little wiggle room. Mueller does not give Trump the benefit of the doubt there. He says that seems to clearly be and uh, an instance of Trump telling Comey, his subordinate, to drop the Flynn investigation. But, you know, it, it, Trump is never really going so far. Like, like a, a lot of this also just des- describes his tweets. And um, a common argument is that, well, if Trump is tweeting all this stuff, attacks on the Justice Department, criticisms of Jeff Sessions, calling on the department to investigate Hillary Clinton, like, well, that's occurring in public view, so it doesn't really seem like you know a secretive effort to do something bad. But then the report reveals that actually, you know, when he's doing all these tweets, he's also privately telling Jeff Sessions, "Hey, you really need to investigate Clinton. You don't even have to tell me that you are, but but do it." Or he's like having his campaign manager send try to deliver a secret message to Jeff Sessions that um that will be uh, an announcement that Sessions will reverse his recusal and and cancel the investigation into past elections and only focus Mueller's investigation on future election meddling, whatever that is. Basically, he is, you know, when you see Trump tweet all this stuff, often, you know, it's not like an impulsive spouting off thing, but he is backing it up with private efforts to make the stuff that he says he wants to happen actually happen and, and it's and it's not that trump is steering clear of the substance of obstructing the inquiry but he is steering clear of documentable criminal violation he steered clear of anything that i think would cause even bill barr to like like Bill Barr, he wrote this memo uh, before he was appointed attorney general, sent it in to the Justice Department and the White House last year saying that I think Mueller's obstruction investigation is going too far because he is focusing on the president's use of his legitimate powers, like firing the FBI director or trying to drop an investigation. And it would restrict presidential power too much to say that, you know, that is open to legal review as potential obstruction of justice. Now, Barr also said in that memo that if Trump had gone so far as to uh, tell a witness to perjure himself or to destroy evidence, like that would be obstruction. Like he was on paper saying clearly – 
you know, that there is a line and that that line could be crossed. And, you know, then even he would have to do something about it. And, you know, Mueller, I think when you look at all these examples that he lays out and and this fact pattern, and we should talk next about why Mueller did not issue a prosecutorial judgment on obstruction one way or the other. But but it seems pretty clear that Mueller thinks this is very serious stuff, especially considered all together. And it 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 just common sense. It's obviously an effort to interfere with the investigation, especially the stuff about, you know, attacking Cohen for flipping, praising Manafort for not flipping. Like it's it's just so obvious what's going on here. And and it's very hard to say with a straight face that he's not trying to interfere with the investigation, but he avoided doing anything so far as we know. And as Mueller could document, so blatant that would like even, you know, force Bill Barr to say, you know, this is criminal obstruction of justice. But this is where I feel like the national conversation has like somehow gone off the rails because, you know, look, like, The president has authorities and like the whole idea of like an impeachment process and a checks and balances system is that like the president could be doing things that a person thinks are in a systematic way, like procedurally unsound, right? And like not how the president should be conducting themselves. And that's just clearly what's happening here. Like, I don't think anybody would with a straight face abstracted away from the details of like who is the president on any given day say that they think a good way for the American government to operate is for the president of the United States to be shutting down criminal inquiries that might implicate his friends and to be ordering up investigations of his political enemies. Like, that's actually a very uncontroversial position. And like... It hasn't like arisen in an incredibly concrete way because previous presidents have been somewhat post Nixon rather have been somewhat cautious about this kind of thing. But like the available enforcement mechanism is congressional impeachment. You know, it's not like the boys in blue show up in the White House and like drag you out of there because of your bad tweets. But it's like this is this is the system that we have, right? And like in other systems of government, right? It's like the prime minister is selected by the members of parliament and you would like lose the confidence of your caucus. And it just would not have this like pseudo judicial air about it. Right. In a in a, you know, Canada. Right. You just like, man, we're going to scandal. We're going to dump this guy. And you don't really see Republicans saying like this is like this is good. Like this is a good way for the president to be. Um, And you certainly don't see the like impeachment shy Democrats saying that this is good or it's a good way for the president to be or the president to behave. You have Mueller. I don't quite know what like being cute. In his thing, like trying to be like the anti Ken Starr at every level. So he's just like, well, here's this document. Like, I'm not doing any interviews. I'm not editorializing. It's just here it is. But like, I don't know. I mean, either we are trying to have a country in which the institutions of law enforcement operate with some level of uh, objectivity and independence, or else we're not. And like, we've also, like, we've read the tweets for months. And like one possible universe is that 
investigation reveals a lot of internal communications where Trump is like, you know, don't worry about it, Jeff. Like, this is just like chum for the bozos out there. Like, it's just politics. But like what we see is the opposite, right? right. That, like Trump is saying like, no, 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 seriously, I would like you <laughs> to quell Mueller's investigation and also to prosecute Hillary Clinton. And like, that's not good. I, I also think it's and I think other people have raised this, that if this report, if this report had been the first we heard about any of this and we hadn't been doing the drip, drip, drip of information for the past several years, I wonder how different that perception, uh, our perception of this investigation would be and how it would play into the political question of impeachment. Because I think it's important to recognize like, impeachment is a political process. It's not a legal one. It doesn't really have to do with the boys in blue. And I also think, you know, we were talking about this yesterday, the idea even just like congressional censure or some means by which Congress could say like, hey, this isn't cool. We don't like it. But it, it's inter- like it is interesting how that 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 swirl of these conversations, you know, a lot of this report is based on information that we now have more details of, but we knew already. And it's interesting. It's interesting how now, now that this kind of lies on Congress, that the question of how to deal with it has changed as well. Well, yeah, I think you're right. There's a lot of boiling the frog aspect to this. Yeah. Like this has been coming out gradually over the past 22 months, and you know, people are like, "Well, we kind of knew most of this, and whatever." I guess we've made our peace with it. But, you know, here's where I think that there was a bit of a surprise to me, because I think beforehand, before the bar letter and and Mueller finished, um, one thing that I thought was a possible outcome of this is that Mueller would conclude Donald Trump likely committed criminal obstruction of justice, but we cannot charge him because he's the president of the United States. And like, that's the conclusion to the report. And then it would be up to Congress to decide what to do about that. But he specifically avoided making that judgment. And I, and I do think it would be different, like at least when it, when it comes to what house Democrats and their level of urgency, like if Mueller came out with this report and said, I believe president Trump violated the law by obstructing justice. I do think we would probably be talking urgently about impeachment right now. It, it would probably obviously end in failure with the Republican Senate. But generally, that's the purpose of a criminal investigation to decide whether someone has committed crimes. And so instead, Mueller. What I heard from House Democrats before the report came out is, though, is that like that was their worst case scenario. Like their nightmare was that the report would not have any criminal conspiracy charges, but would explicitly say that Donald Trump obstructed justice. Because, like, they didn't want to do – leadership, at least, like, didn't want to do the impeachment one way or the other. Like, un- unless unless there was, like, some amazing Russia – direct Russia conspiracy that would change Republicans' minds. And so, you know, in, in a sense, maybe, like, Mueller did them a favor by And I think I would guess that there the was ball. an element of that to Mueller's thinking as well. Because, you know, obviously – If Mueller finds that the president committed a crime, then that leads us to constitutional crisis, impeachment, partisan vote, probably in the end, leaving Trump in office. Like it's it's pretty. uh, I don't know that obviously unexpected things could happen, but that certainly seems like the likely events that paths 
that the path forward would um, include. And so, so instead, he does this thing where Mueller basically says that he's making a thorough factual investigation, even though he can't indict a sitting president. And he says that um, that because he can't indict a sitting president, he's not going to determine one way or the other whether this was criminal conduct or or whether it's deserving of indictment. And he gives kind of a few reasons for that. One is that he does mention Congress's role in deciding this kind of thing. He also mentions the possibility of charges against Trump after he leaves office. He says that um, like it's good to have a thorough and factual investigation now when memories are fresh and then you know, maybe, I, I don't know, he, he doesn't go too far down that road, but he alludes to the possibility of of Trump not being in office one day and perhaps being charged with this. And he also says that usually if you charge someone with a crime, then they can clear their name with a trial. But since I, I can't charge anyone with a crime here, the person I would have charged wouldn't be able to clear their name. Uh, so it would it would be kind of unfair. It, I don't know. There, there's a lot of <laughs> kind of weird logic here to this that ends up concluding, I'm not going to say whether Trump committed a crime here or not, but he goes through these 11 different events and analyzes them by the obstruction of justice statute. Uh, Quinta Jurassic of Lawfare has a great chart kind of color coding what Mueller's analysis seems to be in all of these events and whether they would qualify as obstruction. And he never goes so far as to say that they would qualify, but he explains the three elements to the statute and and often says that the, the investigation established that you know, this was the case, that like this could have obstructed the investigation or that it was connected to a proceeding or that and so, Trump's intent does seem to have been. And so, and so of the 11, there were like five where all three were present, right? Yeah, there were a few. Like, um, it depends how strongly you read his language, but but there are definitely a few where he seems to have no counter arguments and, and more or less is saying this is obviously obstruction but he doesn't say that and then in the end of the report he finishes section three of volume two by saying uh he he quotes a supreme court decision where he says uh, the protection of the criminal justice system from corrupt acts by any person including the president accords with the fundamental principle of our government that quote no person in this country is so high that he is above the law but then he does this conclusion where he's like, well, actually, I'm not going to make a prosecutorial judgment. I'm also going to say that if I had confidence that Trump did not commit obstruction, I would have said so. Uh, and I'm not right. saying that, but <laughs> also, like, I'm not saying that he did. And this report doesn't exonerate him either. So it's it's just very strange. And it reads to me. You know, everyone talks about how Mueller is political and a lot of the report seems to be patting itself on the back as preserving the rule of law. But it it seems like a, a kind of political move to me that uh, that he didn't want to cause the constitutional crisis. He didn't want to 
be the person who, after not finding an actual Russian conspiracy, um, just found a president kind of being <laughs> very corrupt in his treatment of the Justice Department. And and do you pull the trigger and say this is criminal or do you kind of punt on it? And and he chose to punt. Well, I, something I think is interesting that it, it goes uh, – there's a paragraph from page 158 of that second volume that goes into – and I'll, I'll – paraphrase, basically, the president wanted to do some crimes, but then people kept not doing the crimes on behalf of the president. And there's this, you know, the example of James Comey, who didn't end his investigation of Michael Flynn. Don McGahn didn't tell the acting attorney general the special counsel should be removed. Uh, Corey Lewandowski and Dearborn didn't deliver the president's message to Jeff Sessions that he should confine the Russia investigation to future meddling. There are a host of instances in which it appears, um, I think that this has been something that's been picked up by uh, a couple of pieces in both National Review and the Federalist, if you're interested in kind of how conservatives are looking at this, that basically Trump has was rescued by the fact that People tend to ignore what he says and or just not do the, his orders, which is it was funny because Trump had said something like, oh, yesterday, like, oh, everyone always obeys my no one disobeys my orders when clearly people do. And he should be very grateful of that fact. OK, so with that, I think we can take another break. We've got a, a relevant white paper to this and, and to I think the constitutional crisis that we are now at. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun. But it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Okay, so I saw um, the other day when we were, we were planning this episode a law review article by Andrew Kent. He's a professor at Fordham University School of Law. It is called Congress and the Independence of Federal Law Enforcement. 
And I mean, not to be coy about it, he he talks about Trump. He also he talks about Watergate in this article, right? That Watergate was narrowly speaking a scandal about the involvement of the White House with a burglary of the Democratic National Committee and the involvement of the White House in trying to cover that up. Uh, more broadly, though, like the Watergate scandal revealed a lot of problems, some of which like predated Richard Nixon, but many of which related specifically to Richard Nixon. And they involved using the apparatus of the federal government, primarily the FBI, but also um, the IRS, some other elements of the Justice Department for political purposes. And a lot of changes were made to try to make that not be the case. Mostly what was set up was a structure of norms and behavior patterns, many of which, as Jane was saying, sort of held up in the Trump era, right? So like when Trump was like, I hope you can let Michael Flynn off, Comey wasn't like, yes, sir, <laughs> right? Like he didn't, he didn't do it, right? And he wound up getting fired for his trouble, but that was a big deal, right? There was a, there was a hullabaloo about it. It's clear Don McGahn also like, saw his role as, to an extent, like pushing back on some of Trump's notions here, right? The, the, the executive branch operated to some extent to defend these concepts of independence, even as the president tried to tear them down. But, but Ken's big, well, at least one of his big points in this article is that there's not that much specific, like hard substance to that. Right. And that a thing you could do is say that the president cannot fire the FBI director without good cause. Right. You could establish like firm legal situations in which you are not only like able to quietly ignore the president's directions, hope he doesn't actually get around to bothering to fire you, but like actually make it the case that you don't do it, right? Because there's such a thing, right? This is well-established in, in military circles, right? Like, if if you receive an illegal order, like, you are not supposed to follow it, right? But then there's this kind of gray zone in the nexus between the presidency and the Justice Department where there are things you're not supposed to do, but it's also completely legitimate for the president to remove you from office for whatever reason and then put somebody else in, and then there's no real recourse for anybody. And I sort of get all of the political arguments for not pursuing impeachment at this point, and I, I sympathize to an extent with Nancy Pelosi's calculus about this. But if the upshot of this whole affair is that we decide that, like, yeah, Trump did some obstruction of justice, but possibly because of the obstructing, possibly not, we can't really get to the bottom of whether there was an underlying conspiracy. And also, there are a lot of other charges against Trump that there wasn't a special counsel about. And now we know that he can just fire anyone who tries to investigate any of them. That like that's a real blow to the framework that we had in place. And unlike a lot of other Trump era stuff, I, I like I don't think Republicans were saying to themselves, like in 2011, like what we really want to do is undo post-Watergate establishment of the independence of federal law enforcement. But 
they're now really doing that. Yeah, and I think, well, first off, it's it's always good to keep in mind in these conversations the uh, the George W. Bush U.S. attorney firing scandal, which right. is one recent example where something like this came up. Basically, um, several U.S. attorneys were dismissed um, apparently because um, they would not pursue certain investigations that the White House wanted them to pursue. It became a big scandal, and uh, Kent discusses it in the paper. There were there were new rules uh, adopted by uh, Attorney General Bush's last Attorney General. And the General. scandal was just that it was scandalous. I mean, to me, I think that's like an important part, right? There was no suggestion that like the president doesn't, like legally speaking, have the authority to fire people. And also George W. Bush would not go on TV or on Twitter, which didn't exist yet, I think, right. uh, about uh, saying, like, I want my U.S. attorneys to investigate Democrats for, like, phony allegations of voter fraud. And now we have a different situation. And I do think that the current thinking man's Republican position at this point seems to be, okay, Trump, Trump is really corrupt and that is kind of a problem, but also the system works. Uh, the Justice Department did not really respond to his efforts to interfere with the investigation. Uh, Lindsey Graham said today, I protected Mueller. Mueller finished his work, and now that's all I need to know. I'm done with it. But but I don't think Trump is done with it. Like he, right. he has not forgotten about the idea that he wants Democrats and FBI officials, former FBI officials involved in the Russia investigation to to be prosecuted by the Justice Department. And one thing I was hoping this paper would dwell a little more on was um, kind of how these norms work actually in practice and, and how Justice Department officials interpret these norms uh, of of independence from the president. Because you do seem to have this thing going on where Trump says stuff and and everyone in the Justice Department, as far as we know, is basically like, oh boy, I, sh- I shouldn't let that affect my decisions about who to investigate or prosecute. But I don't know. Like we also, like when Comey announced that he wouldn't um, file charges against Hillary Clinton in the email investigation. He said no reasonable prosecutor would bring such a case. And like that was viewed as extremely controversial on the right. And it was pretty easy for conservative media outlets to find credential lawyers who would say, no, actually, I am a reasonable prosecutor and I would have filed charges against Clinton for this. One of the people who wrote such an op-ed was Matthew Whitaker, uh, Trump then appointed him the acting attorney general without Senate confirmation for a couple months. You know, Whitaker has come and gone. Uh, there, I believe, was one controversy about him potentially telling Trump certain things about the Southern District of New York's investigations into Trump. But, you know, it's just a reminder that, like, appointing credentialed people who say, oh, I won't interfere with anything. I'll just like follow the law um, 
it, it doesn't inspire a ton of confidence necessarily as a um, as a bulwark. And it, it's interesting to me how much of this has just become baked in on both sides. Um, I've been interested, you know, there was this kind of this brief moment where I think some uh, Trump supportive conservatives argued that like, Okay, with the Mueller investigation over, you know, that's the thing that's been limiting this presidency. And now we can get back to the business of working on behalf of America. And you'll note, one, Trump's first move upon not the report itself, but Bill Barr's letter summarizing the report was to immediately pivot to health care, an issue upon which conservatives have very little to say that voters are have been responsive to. But also the you know the polling that's been done since Barr's letter and even since the report has showed that like Trump's popularity has not moved at all. Nothing has changed. And you know, I, I talked to a bunch of conservatives kind of about their thoughts on the report. And the argument, as you said, was just basically like, yes, Trump is very corrupt, but his corruption was not illegal. Ergo, it's just kind of on the pile, you know, along with Stormy Daniels and just kind of this kind of litany of Trump's corrupt but not illegal actions. And it's interesting to me that as you know, one, we're we're not gonna stop talking about this investigation of the report, especially as Congress looks to do something, maybe. And you know, when you have Lindsey Graham making the argument that like, okay, you know, there was no underlying cl- crime, there's no obstruction, it's time to move on. But Trump himself is like, no, there were super crimes if they were committed by Democrats. And we need to keep talking about this. It's interesting how like this hasn't really changed the general perspective of this administration among everyday voters one way or the other. And yet we're just going to, you know, this is just going to keep going. And we should remember that there's Trump's legal jeopardy obviously isn't over. Uh, People close to Trump have long been saying that the Southern District of New York investigation into the hush money payments uh, that touches on Trump's business is more dangerous to him than the Mueller investigation. So, you know, that is going to be an issue going forward when it comes to Justice Department independence. How will SDNY make these decisions? Is the president actually above the law? Are they going to do a similar thing? Like, is it, did Mueller set the new precedent now that, you know, what you do when a president maybe committed crimes is you say, uh, well, I can't say whether or not he committed crimes, but I'm not saying he didn't and then kind of do nothing about it. And then there's the role of Bill Barr, who, you know, was very highly credentialed. It was a former attorney general. A lot of the um, legal establishment praised his appointment and, and said uh, he would be a great choice. Even Rod Rosenstein has been going around saying Barr will preserve and protect the rule of law. And then Barr comes out and and really uh, pretty blatantly misrepresents Mueller's findings in his report to Congress, uh, in, in his letter to Congress last month, um, selective quoting, kind of hiding the ball, comes out and gives a press conference the morning the report was released, which was basically Trump's political talking points saying the phrase no collusion four times and is Bill Barr going to preserve the rule of law at the Justice Department as these other investigations to Trump go forward? Or is he really strongly made clear at this point that he's on the president's political team and that you know he's not going to maybe go so far as to commit criminal obstruction of justice, but on close legal issues, personnel decisions, like there are ways to do this, like pick more politically sympathetic people, something like that. Um, that uh, that could neuter these investigations. I also think you know the the independence of these kind of decisions is 
in some ways, like, least threatened in these cases that so clearly impact the president, right? Because if you are running the Southern District of New York or you're a U.S. attorney there, and you are known to be investigating the president of the United States' business interests, it makes sense for you to actually be quite bold about asserting your independence because the absolute worst thing that can happen to you as an SDNY public integrity prosecutor investigating Donald Trump is that, like, you get fired from that job for not agreeing to knock off the investigation, in which case, like, you become a famous martyr, right? <laughs> like James Comey had James Comey not angered every Democrat in America, right? It, it, it's not like good for the country, but there's no reason for you not to sort of like pursue the case aggressively and hope for the best, right? Because like it's not like Trump's going to have you murdered, right? And like your life and career will be fine if you are like the federal prosecutor who got fired for angering Donald Trump with a criminal investigation into the president himself. The problem is when you when you ooze out, right? Like say you're in a much lower profile, you know, federal district and you are looking at not like the president, but like a business partner of the president's son, right? And you are like not going to be headline news if your career just gets like sandbagged by some political hack in the Justice Department, right? Like that's where you really get fear, right? That's where you really get a sort of corruption of the system is when people doing the day-to-day, -day, right, feel like their ability to advance their careers hinges ultimately on political favors back in D.C., you're never going to have a bureaucracy of any kind that exists like totally without politics, but it really matters kind of where you are and where you aren't. And I think that focusing on the sort of like superstar celebrity cases can be a little bit misleading. Like the, that was the interesting thing about the U.S. attorney scandal, right, is that it it dealt with a lot of fairly obscure kinds of matters, right? Like investigation of a governor of Mississippi for a kind of like sort of BSE uh, thing about a public utility commission, some random voter fraud investigations in New Mexico, I think it was, right? It wasn't like at the white hot center of the political universe. And that makes it like the kind of thing where you can get away with, you know, malfeasance because you're not going to be like booked on Lester Holt as like, I got fired for taking on the president. If it's just kind of like, I kind of feel like my career was impeded or I heard a guy say it would be in my interests to just let this go. And that's like, you know, um, I don't know, like it's, it's very problematic. And I think it's very unfortunate that polarization that is not grounded in this subject has like put Republicans in a position where they are so blasé about. Yeah, and I think that it's also the case that, you know, we we talk about the norms of independence at the Justice Department and among prosecutors, but, you know, it's it's not necessarily the case that, you know, prosecutors are independent from considerations of power and considerations of who's important. And you can see that a little bit in Mueller's determinations about whether to charge Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort with the Trump Tower meeting with the Russian lawyer during the campaign. So 
some legal experts were saying that this was a campaign finance violation. It was Russian dirt on Hillary Clinton offered by foreign national. And uh, it, it was a thing of value. And it violated the prohibition on accepting a help for the campaign, uh, financial help for the campaign, or, or something that, that has financial value from a foreign national. And Mueller kind of explains why he didn't charge Don Jr. with this, even though there's clear email evidence with Don Jr. saying that he was happy to accept this dirt. Um, and, you know, he was saying he didn't think the evidence was strong enough. There were some issues about um, proving the value of the information. And it was also perhaps significant that, according to Mueller, no information was actually given. And, you know, Rick Hayson from uh, UC Irvine has written that he was really unconvinced by this legal analysis. And and maybe legally that makes sense. But practically, this was Mueller deciding whether he was going to charge the son of the president of the United States on a case that was, you know, <laughs> you know, if there was no actual dirt, if. It was hard to place a monetary value on it. Uh, like, it's hard. Like, like it, it's the if you come at the king, you best not miss principle, whereas, like, you know, we say that no one's above the law, but, you know, any prosecutor will think really long and hard before filing charges against the son of the president of the United States if they have anything less than a really rock solid case. Although this I thought was an interesting, like one thing that right when when Mueller was first appointed that I heard from some quarters was that like the real safeguard of the FBI's independence, right, is that Trump having fucked with them was now going to get fucked by them. Which does isn't good. Like that idea. I, 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 I just I, I, like that I, implicit I, argument that just like, oh, now look what he's done. Like he's gone out. And I'm like, that's not that's that's not good. That I, would I, not be. Good. I, I agree. But clearly the Don Jr. decision making is that that's not the direction Mueller went. Right. We got to a thing where like you probably it, it seems like you could have filed the charges. Right. You might have lost the case. But like that's. Part of what prosecutors do, right? It's like mostly you try to file the cases that you win and not file the cases that you lose. But every once in a while, you take a flyer on a tough case because you decide it's worth it. You decide it's important, right? And Mueller clearly made the, the reverse calculus of that, right? Like he made the calculus. I do not want like a huge political mega controversy over an iffy case, right? Like I would – bring a really good case, but I don't have a really good case, right? But so that's like, that's the reverse. Like that is the FBI. And this is part of like, like it really wasn't 18 angry Democrats going after Donald Trump. Like it was a Republican FBI director. And the FBI is really not a deep state agency run by liberal Democrats. Like it's mostly conservative Republicans. And like they decided to like, yes, investigate this Trump thing, but then proceed with fair amount of caution based on what they found, not like 
push it as far as they possibly could. And that's like what you're saying, right? The conclusion, he he doesn't say it was obstruction of justice, even though it seems like he was kind of saying that. He says like, well, I maybe could have charged on Junior, but like I decided not to. Like it wasn't that good of a case. And that's... I don't know. I mean, it's a consequential decision. Yeah. And and meanwhile, uh, at the FBI itself, the entire top leadership ranks have been gradually, you know, fired in the case of Comey and eventually Andrew McCabe and, and other people below them were sort of ushered out, asked to move on. You can say this is normal. This is a, there's a new director, Chris Ray. He's bringing in his own people. And and they generally seem to be people with good professional reputations, FBI lifers who, um, you know, there's no indication that any of them are doing anything wrong. Having said that, like, it does not really seem to be the case that, like, the FBI is fiercely preserving its independence by, like, trying to screw over Trump. Instead, he really has gotten kind of his own, not his people necessarily, but different people put in charge of the FBI. He's gotten rid of their previous top rank of leadership. And, you know, it it seems to have worked fine for him. And, and do those people know that, like, if they push too far in an investigation into people close to Trump, they might meet the same fate as uh, Andrew McCabe or Peter Strzok or James Comey or something like that? Um Hopefully, that's not something that's weighing on their minds very much. But, you know, it would be hard to be completely immune to that consideration. Absolutely. Um, all right. We've gone on for for a long time here. Uh, I guess Trump will continue to be corrupt and inappropriate in the future. So we may have more opportunity uh, to discuss this. Um, thanks so much uh, for, for joining us, Andrew. Uh, thanks for everybody uh, for listening. Uh, on Friday, we are going to have a special live Weeds episode recorded for you guys to celebrate the fifth anniversary of Vox.com. I'm really excited about it. Um, So thanks to all you guys. Thanks as always to our producer, Jeffrey Geld, and the Weeds uh, will be back on Friday. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise.